Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. going to be in Ephesians 4 today. If you got your Bibles, you might turn there. But while you're looking up Ephesians 4, I want to start actually in Psalms. A famous passage in Psalm 133 starts out and says this, and actually this is the entire psalm. It's a really short psalm. It says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Can I get an amen? Amen. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, I don't know about you, when I think of oil running down my head and my beard and my collar, it's just kind of gross. Uh, There's not a whole lot appealing about that to me. In that culture, it was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of anointing. It was a sign of God's favor being dripped all over you and overwhelming you. And it was a good thing. It was like the dew of the morning on ground that is parched. Something that was refreshing. If you've ever been in a place that's dry and all of a sudden there's dew on the ground, it's, it's refreshment that is to take place there. But it says, behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity? Now, um, I know anytime you think about churches, you think of people in unity, right? Singing kubaya around the campfire in perfect harmony and everything being joyful and wonderful and good, especially in the last couple of years when you think about the church, that's what you think of, is this unified, all-together group of people. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of division in the last couple of years, hasn't there? When I, when I think about the churches that... Uh, that we see oftentimes, um, honestly, it's been, become kind of a joke. It's become kind of a caricature in our world. The, the churches are the angry people. Churches are the people that are known more for what they're against than what they're for. Churches are the people that, that bicker and fight and attack. And when I see that caricature, that idea that's out there, it grieves me. And I think it should, because we'll see later, it grieves the Holy Spirit. When people are divided, when God's people that Jesus has rescued are not together, it brings sorrow to the person of the Holy Spirit. But Psalm 133 goes on to say that blessing and life are forever found where unity is found amongst brothers and sisters of the faith. Friends, you realize from the beginning to end that the Bible is about relationships? relationship with God, but also relationship with one another. And in the very beginning chapters, it says, it is not good for man to be alone. That we're, we're created for community. We're designed to be in relationship with one another. And so you see this emphasis from beginning to end in the Bible that's focused on community. You get to the very end, and it's people of every tongue and every tribe together in unison singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so there's this, there's this relational thing. And somehow our togetherness, the communion that we have amongst the people of God is pleasing to the Lord. 
It's precious to God. So what's the problem? Well, it's people, right? I mean, it's not hard to say. It's like the old church joke. Like, this would be really easy if it weren't for all the people. Uh, that's, you know, that maybe should be a pastor joke. Maybe one of those things that pastors say behind closed doors that they're not supposed to admit. But uh, let's be honest, that, that things would be a whole lot easier if we weren't all here. Uh, it would also lack a lot of beauty and strength and meaning. It wouldn't be the thing that God created us to be, and the church would lose her, her goodness if we didn't have people. So today, uh, we're coming to the last sermon in our series on the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the unity of the Spirit. And so as you get to Ephesians 4, uh, I want to talk to you today about two different things. One is false unity, and then the other is true unity. So let's start with the bad. Um, let's talk about false unity. Uh, this is oversimplified, but there's two common ways that our world seeks to bring, bring unity that fall short of what true unity, biblical unity, really is. And those two ways are that unity, unity is not universal conformity, and unity is not universal affirmation. Let's start with conformity. Unity is not universal conformity. There's, there's one side of our society that wants to pro- apply external pressure on others to have them conform to a uniform set of views or preferences. This oftentimes is what happens in groups where everyone's expected to adhere to certain cultural codes or certain conduct or certain viewpoints. And so there's, a, there's kind of a, a pressure upon them to make everyone look more uniform that they would begin to look more alike and think more alike and bring people into a sense of conformity. Now, typically, this group is less fearful and more confident when everything stays the same. That as long as as everything stays in the way that I feel comfortable, then I'm going to feel more confident. I'll be less fearful about the world around me. But when things start changing, when someone starts pushing against the boundaries that I feel comfortable with, I start to get uncomfortable, is what someone in this group might say. This group uh, tends to overvalue uniformity. Unity is sought through mutual conforming to a certain set of codes or standards. So that's mutual conformity. That's one way to try to achieve unity, right? Let's just try to make everyone a lot more alike. Now, the other approach to unity is really on the other end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum is that unity is not universal affirmation. So there's another group that would embrace all ways of life, as, of life as equally valid paths to flourishing. That they would say, anything you want to do, as long as it's what comes out of you naturally, should lead to your flourishing if we just stay out of the way and let you go. And so we want to affirm, affirm everything that you desire to be. And so this goes beyond acceptance of others to affirmation of them and endorsement of their behaviors. So this group tends to overvalue self-expression and personal identity, and unity is sought in mutual inclusivity. You see how that works? So two different approaches that the world often takes to try to maintain unity. One through making everyone adhere and conform. The other through letting everyone turn loose and express freedom. And those are ways that, that the world seeks oftentimes to create unity. Now we see these in the broader cultures, but these mindsets often creep into the churches as well. And so we see churches that tend to drift in one of those two directions. One that drifts more in a legalistic, kind of conforming sort of way, and one that turns more into a freedom, turn you loose sort of a way. And and so these ideas seem to creep into the church, but um, this is what we want to talk about today is what, what does biblical unity, true unity really look like? Because somehow it goes beyond either one of those two extremes. It goes to and points us to something bigger. So let's talk about true unity and let's dig into Ephesians chapter 4. 
says, I therefore, this is verse 1, I'm going to read 1 through 5. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to the call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in these verses, Paul describes what Christians are called to do and be, right? And he gives us this list of words. It's the word to be people of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. And these are supposed to be things that don't just happen occasionally in our lives, correct? Like these are things that are supposed, we're not supposed to surprise and be like, well, I'll be danged. I was patient in that scenario. Like something happens and you go, man, I pulled it off. Like I was actually kind to the guy. I was gentle instead of retaliating. I was remarkable. Uh, it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be something that says that we're to walk in a manner worthy. When it talks about walking, it's talking about a habitual lifestyle, something that ought to flow out of your everyday actions. And so it's the manner in which you live, the things that characterize your life. It's this habitual pattern that ought to develop in your life. And we should be characterized by those things. You notice he says walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so this is something that we have to walk out in our practice and should be characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, habitually. So these things are to be formed in us. They're to be developed in us. They're to be fostered in us so that they come to characterize and be a constant presence in our life. Now, it's pretty obvious that life would be better where this kind of unity exists and people act this way, right? than when people act another way. And where these things exist, unity exists. And what we see in this passage and also from Psalm 133 is that where this kind of unity exists, God exists. And there's joy amongst the people of God when they, enjoy, when they live life together in this way. Now, it's obvious also that where there's disunity, that the evil one's at work. That, that where, where Satan sows seeds of darkness and evil, that there's going to be a, a, within people suspicion and distrust Cynicism, gossip, uh, displacement, discouragement, isolation, bullying, belittling. Uh, these are going to be the things that typify a place where there's disunity. And those go directly against the unity that the Spirit's trying to bring. But you notice how these traits bring about relational goodness in a church? Uh, think about how when these things are at play, how it brings relational unity to a ministry team, to a mission team, to a marriage, to a family. When we walk in unity, it brings a sense of relational, communal goodness to our lives that we were intended to live out and we were, intended, that was, we were created for. Now, in this, these verses, what motivation is given for how we should live in unity? It says to walk in a manner worthy of what? The calling to which you've been called. So we've received a calling. And so now we have to learn to walk out of that calling. So we, we receive something and then we live out of that, uh, the thing that we received. And when you think about this calling from God, the moment we receive faith in Christ, you were in a sense called up to something greater than self. You're, you were called up into a community that's bigger than just you and your own preferences and your own desires. And so there's a calling on our lives and we have to learn to walk according to that calling. And so as you think about uh, this, there's a... a way to kind of think about how it is that we're called to live. And uh, Kevin DeYoung says it this way, the call to unity is the summons to show in relational practice 
what is already true in spiritual reality. So it's a summons to live out in relationships the things that are already spiritually true of us as a community of the people of God. So God has called us up together into this new thing called the church. And so there's a spiritual reality that's in a sense been bestowed upon us and it's calling us to live and walk that out in the reality of our lives. Now, in verse 3, there's a fascinating word there that says that we are to be eager. He says... um, that he's, he's exhorting us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I, I see people eager for a lot of things. I see people eager for lunch. I see singles who are eager to be married. I see um, people who are eager to go on vacation. But I don't always see people eager to bring about peace in relationships that are frustrating. And, and yet we're called to be eager. We're called to desire it. That speaks to heart desire, doesn't it? When you're eager to do something, you're like, man, I can't wait. And if you wake up today and go, I can't wait to bring peace to relationships that are, where people are divided. That's just not the way we think. Most of us are like, I can't wait to run away from relationships where people are divided. I can't wait to distance myself from the issues that are there. I can't wait to just get out of dodge whenever things are tense. But he says, uh, we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, there's another word there, eager to maintain. Now, you can't maintain something you don't already possess, right? And so there's, a, there's an implication here in the text that says, you've been given something, you have it, it's yours, you possess it, your job is to maintain it. You didn't create it, you don't have to foster it up, it's yours, God's given it to you, your job's not to lose it. Your job's to not let it die out, but to keep it flourishing. So what does Paul say we're to be eager to do? We're to maintain that which we possess. So there's a spiritual reality we're already, we've already received, but we have to walk it out in practice of our day-to-day life. We have to live it out. And so our unity is, the grounds of our unity, friends, this is important. The grounds of our unity is not emotional. It's not merely what we want, what we will, or what we feel. That, that is not the grounds of our, of our unity. Our unity is grounded in who God is and what God has done for us. That's what brings us together. It's not about how I wake up and feel in the morning. It's not about how I, how I feel when you rub me the wrong way. It's not how I feel when you make a choice that goes against what I might have preferred. But our unity is somehow bigger than, than us. Now to understand this, you notice he says that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're going to come back to that in the bond of peace. If you don't understand the bond of peace and what that phrase is referring to, you don't really understand the grounds of our spiritual unity. So I want us to go back a couple chapters to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at at a long section here in Ephesians 2. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. but But I want to read this over you. And I want you to think... As, you, as I read, I want you to listen for something. I want you to listen for words that describe how divided and isolated and far off we were until Jesus brought us together. Okay? So just listen to, listen to this as I read and listen for those words that describe how isolated and far away you were before the bond of peace came to you in Christ. Ephesians 2 says, Remember that at that time, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of prominence, having no hope without God in the world. But now, 
in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who made us both. Who were, we, we were separated, but we were, we were both individuals. But he made us both one. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and no longer aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints, members of the one household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a one holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And do you feel the intensity of what Paul's saying there? Do you feel, uh, just in the verses, there's a whole lot of words that are not unity words, Right? That you were separated, alienated, without hope, without God, far off, divided by a wall of hostility, strangers, aliens, without access to God. That's who you were. It says, but now. But now that Christ has come. But now that the Spirit has birthed new life in you. But now that you have a new reality and that you're brought together into this thing called the church as the people of God who God has brought to life and brought together and there's no longer division between you and God or division between you and others, but there's peace. But now, he says, Christ died to bring peace. Peace between God and man, but also peace between man and man. Peace between different groups of people. All of this is a part of what Jesus came to bring. That's why when it says in Ephesians 4 that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that's what it's referring to. This is the bond of peace. Jesus himself, verse 14, verse 214 says, Jesus himself is our peace. Do you believe that? Have you staked your life on that? That I have no peace with God or peace with man apart from the unity I have in Christ. Verse 18, it says, For through Jesus we both, meaning those who are Jewish and those who are Gentiles, those who are, who, who are near to God because they have the law and all the stuff of, of, of religiosity, and those who are far off from God, the Gentiles who are isolated from God's people. This is both together. It says, Through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see the Trinity in that verse? That we were separated from God the Father, but through the sacrifice and death and victory of Jesus, we were, through the Spirit, given access to the Father so we could have unity with Him. And we could be reunited to the Godhead. So it's through the victory of Jesus, the Son of God, the work of the Spirit of God, that we have access to God the Father. That's why it says, but now we have the bond of peace. Now we've been brought near. Now we, he's made us both one people who live together. He's created one new man out of two. He's reconciled us to God. He's broken all in the walls between us. He's given us access to the same Father in heaven. He's joined us together into one holy temple. And he's building us together in the dwelling place of the Spirit, verse 22. Very, very dwelling place of God, verse 22 says, by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in us that brings us together 
and brings us real spiritual unity. Now, do you see why it's eager? Why it's supposed, we're supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? If, if, if God's done all of this so that we who are far off could be brought near and, and made one with Him and made one with one another, and He's bestowed that blessing upon us and given us all of that goodness, and He says, now, you need to learn to walk in light of that goodness. You need to let that truth wash over you so that having understand the, the mystery of the gospel and how it brings us together, that we might then, we might then live differently. See, the assumption is that for those of us that have trusted Christ, that have the bond of peace because of Jesus, that the most important stuff in our lives are all we have in common now. That, that we're together in, in the most important arenas of our life, that we, we share those things in common because of our common faith. And so for Christians, true spiritual unity is already present, but it has to be lived out in the day-to-day of our relationships. And that's why it says in, in chapter 4, that we are to be patient. We're to, be, to walk with humility and gentleness. We're to bear with one another in love. So Paul takes what he says in Ephesians 2, and then in Ephesians 4, what he's doing is expanding his argument, right? And saying, if, if all of that is true of us, then when we get to Ephesians 4, this is how we ought to live um, in light of the gospel truth. And so let's go back to Ephesians 4. Just look at verses 4 and 5. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you feel the unity in those verses? Notice the word that's repeated. It's one. We're together. And God's in us. And God's birthed something in us. And now it's our job to live out of that spiritual unity that he's already given but live it out in the context of our relationships. Our unity is, is built on God and on his work in us. So Paul wants Christians to get along despite their differences because of the deep spiritual unity um, that they have in common. Now, here's what I think we have to recognize this means for us. There's going to be a lot of differences within the body of Christ, right? That means that within this unity, uh, the church may also have great diversity in terms of our personal histories, our ethnicity, our cultural preferences, our politics, even our football teams. Uh, you all know it's Bedlam week, right? And so, you know, she'll be playing for a conference championship with Baylor Bears, kind of sitting back in the, uh, kind of watching to see if they can sneak in here a little bit. And so, um, but we're supposed to, we're going to have all these differences and there's a lot of diversity. But in the midst of that, we're supposed to have unity. In fact, he's going to go on in Ephesians 4 and he talks about our different giftedness and our different roles. And he says that the church grows up as it builds itself up in love as each individual part functions in its own role and does, does the thing it's supposed to do. Do you know every place we talked last week about the gifts of the Spirit, every place where it talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he immediately jumps in and says, but we need to have humility and unity. And so we're going to have a diversity of gifts and skills and talents and preferences and desires within the body of Christ. And yet, in the middle of that, diverse, that kind of diversity of giftedness, we need to be humble and unified in the way in which we interact. And there's no chance for pride that would divide us there. So do you see what Paul is calling out here in the midst of our spiritual unity? Um, this entire section, really, we see this in, anticipated, that, that the gospel is going to penetrate a diverse group of people. 
And so even at the very beginning when the Spirit comes in Acts 2, you see this diversity of things that takes place. And so the Spirit comes and there's uh, the disciples. And man, what a humbling thing if you're the disciple where Jesus goes, Look, you're going to be the ones I'm sending out to do my work in the world, but you really don't have much to offer, so I need you just to sit back until the Spirit comes. And then when the Spirit comes, he's like, okay, now you can go do something. Because now there's a chance that this is going to turn out okay. And so they begin to go out. But immediately, what's he say? He says, you're to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Meaning that, that you're not going just to one group of people. You're not going to people that look just like you. You're not going to people that live just where you live. But you're to go to the ends of the earth. And you're to go to people that speak other languages. You're going to go to other people that look different than you. You're to go to places like Ecuador. You're to go to places all around the globe where the expectation is that the gospel is going to be enlivened by the Spirit of God to bring new people into the church of God. And we are all unified by the work of God and then empowered for the mission of God. So there's great diversity, but there's complete unity. And that's the way that the scriptures say this over and over. And so when we get down to, uh, you go to 1 Corinthians 12, you see, for just as, uh, just as the body of Christ is one and has many members, all the members uh, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. We see in 1 Corinthians 12. It means God intends for there to be strong unity in the midst of great diversity. You understand, friends, that all tribes and tongues share in the Spirit equally? That men and women share in the Spirit equally? That rich and poor share in the Spirit equally? Educated and uneducated share in the Spirit equally? That uh, Baptists and Presbys and non-denominationals share in the Spirit equally? God, God sends His Spirit into a diverse group of people, and that's to His glory. And that's for our good. And so as we come and we think about this, together, ultimately, it's not, we're not united in our preferences and personalities, but we're united in, by the person of God. And it's Him we worship. And He becomes our ultimate reality, and everything else is a secondary reality underneath what is true spiritually in Him. And so we're called to maintain unity in the midst of all the diversity that we've been given. So let me... Let me jump down just a little bit as we kind of think about how do we apply this and how do we live it out. You notice I didn't spend a whole lot of time today talking about what humility is. I didn't talk a lot about how do we bear with one another in love. I didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, talking about what patience is. Because my, my, my suspicion is that you, you understand what the basic ideas of those are, right? Like when someone does something wrong, you don't retaliate. When someone offends you or actually sins against you, you bear with them in forgiveness. And there's, when someone speaks harshly to you, you don't retaliate with that, but you, you absorb that for the sake of the unity and for goodness. And that doesn't mean we don't, that we can't live with boundaries and we don't set up healthy relationships. But there's a calling to those things. I think the problem, though, is not, that we, not in our comprehension of what he's asking us to do. I think it's much more about our willingness to do the things that we know we should do. Um. And so when we think about the spiritual unity, it really is working out in the moment-by-moment, day-by-day reality of the relationships in our lives that we have to do this. And so friends, as we move forward into this year, this next year as a church, we're going to go through a lot of changes. There's going to be a whole lot of things that happen. Uh, there, I'm going to guess 
that our world is still going to be very polarized and very divided. I'm going to guess that there are going to be voices talking in all of, um, all of our ears coming from different angles. And there's going to be things online that are going to pro- provoke us and poke at us and drive us crazy. But it doesn't change what Jesus is saying to us here. That in the midst of all of that, we're to be a unified people eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace which Jesus has given to us through His grace. So let me show you one last, one last passage that shows you that this isn't just theoretical or theological, but ultimately this is, this is relational. Uh, this is personal. And so let's go um, just a couple verses over in chapter 4 and look in Ephesians 4.29. He's going to continue his argument here. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, what what do these verses teach us about our relationship with the Holy Spirit? That it's personal. You see the relational aspect of that? Do you know that the way in which you treat, you treat others affects the way the Holy Spirit grieves? What, what are the things that, in, in this context, what are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice? When God's people are divided, when God's people are angry, when God's people are clamoring for position because of their pride and their preferences, when God's people are unforgiving, it says that it actually grieves the Holy Spirit. It brings sorrow in a personal, relational way. Now flip that around. Because if he can be grieved, he can also experience joy, right? What things bring the Holy Spirit joy when he looks at the people of God? I think it's when we act in ways that are good for building up, when we give grace to others, when we're kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. When we, when we act in those sorts of ways, I think the, the opposite is true. We, we, grieve when we, we grieve Him when we act poorly. When we act in ways that look like Jesus, we actually bring the Holy Spirit joy. What would it look like if you woke up in the morning and said, I'd love to bring a smile to the Holy Spirit's face today. A little anthropomorphic, you know, mixing up there with his face and smiling. But there's a sense in which he's personal and he's relational and he can experience a joy that you would bring in the way that you live. And I think that ought to, uh, that ought to color the way in which we live. But it also tells, kind of points us to the motivation of our actions, doesn't it? Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ forgave you. See, the gospel ultimately is the motivation for the way in which we're to live. The, the way in which we ought to treat one another is the way in which we've been treated by the Lord. Uh, just as Christ loved you, let us also then love one another, scriptures say. And so as we think about how it is that we're to live this out, the gospel ought to be a powerful motivation in your relational life. This ought to teach you how it is that you relate to others. And you think of how it is, should I, should I treat this individual in the middle of the circumstance? A good question to ask is, well, what did Jesus do towards me in the middle of the circumstance? 
How did Christ act towards my behalf? Well, he gave us grace. That's why it says that, that we should fit to the moment the words that come out of our mouth so that they might hear grace. That that ought to be the thing that overflows out of us. It would be that they would experience grace. Now, you may be saying, well, but you don't know the kind of sinners I have to run around with. Like, you don't know the people that I have to deal with. Well, Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Christ forgave us. You go, well, but you don't know how they offended me. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how, how wronged I was. And I look at Romans and says, well, while we were yet enemies, what? Christ gave his life for us. And so, friends, we love as Christ loved because we first received grace from him. And so we extend grace to others. One more, one more application for us as we think about how to live this out. Church, one of the ways that we're called to be light in a dark world is through the unity that we have. The way we love one another is part of our witness. They will know, they will know our love, the love of God, by the way we love one another. And so, friends, if we want our words to fall, our words to be listened to, I think we have to acknowledge that our words will fall on deaf ears as long as a watching world sees the wounding of one another within the body of Christ. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Let's not be people who wound one another. Let's be people who extend grace, who love, who forgive, who bear with, who are patient, who are kind, who are gentle. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what the Spirit births in us. So let's be a people who's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. We come in the bond of peace knowing that we were far off, but you brought us near through the victory of Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb. Father, might that bond of peace resonate in our hearts even now that your spirit might, um, might speak to us and might convict us of where we need to love more boldly, where we need to sacrifice more generously, where we need, to, we need to offer our lives more completely in service of others. Um, Father, would you bring us together? Would you keep us together? Would you take the spiritual reality of the gospel and would you cause it to be worked out in the moment-by-moment, day-to-day stuff of our lives? Father, we pray in Christ's name and by your spirit. Amen.